the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 475 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Uh, really glad to have Dave Hollis on as a guest today and uh, for our partners. ProMedia Fire would love to give you a custom website and web maintenance if you simply head on to ProWebFire.com. Tell them I sent you and you'll get a discount. And you can register for Remodel Health's free webinar on understanding the 401k of health benefits by going to RemodelHealth.com slash webinar. Well, I'm really grateful for you as well. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for all the feedback, man. The future series that I did just, you know, on everything from crypto to hybrid church to the metaverse got a lot of response and mostly really like encouraging response. And thanks for being willing to experiment and dig in with me on new subjects. And maybe we'll do that more often, just kind of put the spotlight on something for a little while here on the podcast. In the meantime, I continue to bring you conversations that, well, normally you would have at dinner, backstage, and try to bring them to you. And today is no exception. We've got Dave Hollis on. Some of you may know, if you follow him on social, he's taken a complete break from social media. He says he's uh, withdrawing from public life, uh, has a little bit of work to do. And it was a very touching and a little bit heartbreaking note if you read that on his Instagram account, as I did. So I reached out to Dave and I shot him a text and just said, hey, um, you know, praying for you, thinking of you, uh, the interview hasn't released, what what do you think? And he said, you know what? He sent me the kindest note back and just said, you do what you want. And uh, in, in the nicest way. So I decided to air it. And I decided to air it because I think a lot of us have found ourselves in Dave's shoes where maybe... We're just processing some things that are hard to talk about. And I thought Dave gave a fantastic interview. I learned so much during this interview. We had a really good time. Um, but hey, if if you've been there as a leader and I've been there as a leader where sometimes the, the private pressure gets to be so much, you feel like taking a break. Some of you have taken a break. Um, I think this could be a very helpful interview. So that's why I've decided to run it. And let me tell you a little bit more about Dave. Dave is a New York Times bestselling author of Get Out of Your Own Way, and he is the former president of distribution for the Walt Disney Studios. Dave has seen both the negative consequences of limiting beliefs and the positive power of imagination. He is a member of the Motion Picture Academy and has been an advisor to many companies, including Fandango Labs, the startup GiveSome, uh, the film charity Will Rogers Pioneers Foundation, Pepperdine's Institute for Entertainment, Media, and Culture, and for the foster care champion, National Angels. And he and I had a wonderful conversation, and I hope it really encourages you. Hey, you have three options for a new website for 2022. You can do a do-it-yourself website builder. There are a lot of them online. And then you end up doing, number one, a lot of work, and number two, looking like everybody else. You can hire someone to build your website and hassle you with all the updates. Or you can get a custom website and web maintenance with hassle-free updates with ProMedia Fire's web division, ProWeb Fire. The ProWeb Fire process is simple. You get website strategy sessions, your custom design and development stage, and you look amazing online and convert traffic. The best part, 
Once your site is complete, you can choose a hosting plan for monthly or weekly maintenance and never have to hassle with updating your site again. Want an amazing website? Reach out to the pros at ProMediaFire's web division by going to ProWebFire.com. Tell them I sent you. You will get a discount. ProWebFire.com. And again, tell them I sent you. And then record numbers of Americans are changing jobs for better benefits. But with group health insurance costs going up every year, how can you possibly find something better for your employees without busting your budget? The good news is that American health benefits have gone through a huge change even though you might not have heard about it yet. It's actually the same thing that happened to retirement benefits back in the 80s when the 401k emerged. And the great news is that the 401k of health benefits have been around and growing for over a decade. And the reason it's become so popular is it's drop costs while giving even better coverage. Some groups and organizations are saving millions of dollars. So imagine what savings like that could do for you and your mission. I know since you're listening to this podcast, it means you love to learn, which is perfect because learning is your first step. Remodel Health is offering a free educational webinar that will teach you everything you need to know around the 401k of health benefits. If you're curious on how to save money, go to remodelhealth.com slash webinar, learn about this huge change, and you'll care for your team better than ever. Remodelhealth.com slash webinar. So with all that said, let us dive into a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation with Dave Hollis. Dave, welcome to the podcast. It's good to finally connect. It is so good to connect. Thank you for bringing me into your community. I'm excited about this conversation and the start of a friendship. Yeah, yeah, me too. So it's been a while coming. We have a lot of mutual friends and uh, yeah, I'm really grateful to have this conversation. And I kind of want to uh, like start with a bit of backstory. So you were the president of worldwide theatrical distribution for Walt Disney Studios. Just a small title, small responsibility, not a lot. Um, and you're involved in like pumping out movies like Frozen, Inside Out, all things Marvel, uh, probably the Disney franchise or, or the Star Wars franchise, I should say. What was the, what was a ride at Disney like? Like, tell me a little bit about that. How did it start? And then right up to when you decided to walk away. Yeah. Uh, number one, it was just overall amazing. So much of who I am, so much of what I've learned and now get to apply in the rest of my life happened inside of those hallowed walls of the Walt Disney Company. I, uh, just out of college, started a career inside of entertainment where I jumped from company to company every year, year and a half. I worked at Fox and grassroots marketing uh, as a talent manager in public relations and found myself uh, looking to do something longer term inside of a big corporate environment when I got a phone call and started what ended up being a 17-year career at the Walt Disney Company. I, I started in the package media side of the business, so home video, DVDs, VHS, selling things, marketing things, working on new technologies. But I had a very interesting kind of career in that in the first 10 years, I had 10 different jobs and 11 different bosses that satisfied my professional ADD on such a frequency and often had me walking into environments where I was not the most logical candidate, didn't have the most you know, experience or the resume that necessarily said, oh, this guy makes sense. But part of that was how I was always, you know, drinking out of a fire hydrant in some respects, learning as I went, having to kind of humble myself to listen and made a bunch of mistakes. And in those mistakes was able to learn and reframe that failure as part of how I was acquiring knowledge and growing as an executive. 
About 11, 10, 11 years in, I was uh, fortunate to be asked if I might come into the theatrical business, first as the head of international theatrical distribution, a thing, again, that was not uh, a, a thing that you might have assumed I would be perfect at. I had never worked outside of the U.S., had never worked inside of theatrical, had had a couple of sales jobs, but not a ton of experience. Um, but I did have something in people skills and had demonstrated a little bit of this is that guy that figures things out when we throw him into new things. He's routinely said yes to opportunity. And each time, uh, it, especially in instances where something wasn't working perfectly, has found a way sometimes with fishing line and duct tape to create solutions in unconventional ways, in part because of the objectivity that he might have brought to the space, not having had a ton of experience. I was in that job with this uh, conceit that, hey, if uh, for three or four years you're able to learn this business, you might make yourself a candidate to take over the global head of distribution job when that head leaves, whenever he chooses to. And about six months into the job, Christmas comes around and my predecessor gives me a phone call and says, you know what? It's not going to be three or four years, man. I, uh, <laughs> have, I've had a great ride. I've done the things I need to do, and I'm going to recommend that you take on the helm of this now global distribution business. And thus began what was the last seven years of time for me at the Walt Disney Company, leading sales for, at the time, Disney, Pixar, and then ultimately the acquisition of Marvel Studios, and then the subsequent acquisition of Lucasfilm. And what at the time, and I'm going to argue maybe for the rest of time, was the greatest collection of intellectual property in the history of the film business. Wow. And those first three years, I got the job at 36, were just the best. I mean, it was the most invigorating. I was so wildly out of my depth. My head of domestic had 25 years of experience on me. My head of international, almost 30 years of experience on me. And so trying to find a way to endear myself to them and build trust, represent that I was interested as much in asking dumb questions to learn as I was trying to block and tackle, keep people out of their way, was part of the game. And in what is ultimately a huge relationship business, as someone who was preceded by someone who'd been in the job for 30 years, he could walk into a room and very casually make a recommendation that everyone immediately nodded up and down to because it came from his mouth. And here I, you know, without any experience and no relationship equity, uh, I had to approach things in a wildly different way by building an analytics team, using information rather than emotion, and uh, over time built relationships based on decisions that were helped, you know, supported in some ways by the way that the business had historically run and not necessarily an instinct. Um, and that instinct developed a bit over time and those relationships built over time. But my end of time at the Walt Disney Company, interestingly, coincided with my having turned 40 and a set of existential questions that uh, I found myself inundated with as I was now asking these, why am I here? Why have I been given these gifts? Why in the abundance that exists in this greatest collection of film properties and the best filmmakers and the greatest leadership team and the best team that I get to manage, uh, do I feel the way that I do about a job that on the outside looks like the best? And the answer ended up being, in some respects, because I was getting straight A grades and not having to study necessarily for the tests. I'd, in some ways, in a contrast to those first three years of massive learning, I'd stopped 
learning. I'd stop growing. I, I'd been in a place where I was growing so much so fast because of how many times I was switching jobs or because of the learning curve of this new big job. And in those last handful of years, it just wasn't the same thing. And I believe in so many ways that it's binary, that we're either growing or dying, that there isn't so much uh, a steady middle where you can just tread water. And so I, in this existential crossing of the 40th birthday, found myself dying. And mm. it wasn't until I had a serendipitous conversation in my backyard with my three boys playing a game that we normally played where they could ask me anything in hot tub. Usually it was gross, ridiculous, weird stuff because they're young boys, nine, seven, and four at the time. Yeah. And my nine-year-old asks uh, a fairly innocuous, dad, what are you most afraid of question? He's looking for tarantulas or scorpions or dragons or something silly. And out of my mouth, out of my subconscious falls not living up to my potential. And wow. in me saying this thing out loud and bringing it into the light, I recognize that, of course, I happen to also be living into my greatest fear at the same time that I'm pronouncing it. And now that I could see it, I couldn't unsee it. And the only thing that was left to do was to cultivate the courage to take action so that I could move away from this state where I was both dying and living into my greatest fear. So I had to make a change. Boy, I feel like there's an hour right there that we could just pick apart, Dave. That's quite the uh, quite the synopsis of a, of a career. Um, let me back up a little bit, if I could, and just pick that apart a bit. Disney's a legendary company. I mean, global leader and just has, like I know so many of the leaders listening are huge Disney fans, you know, Star Wars fans, Action hero fans, Marvel fans, um, Snow White fans, you know, Magic Kingdom fans. It's just this massive empire. What was, when you joined the Disney company, what we're looking back on it, some of the biggest surprises that hit you about Disney. It's like, oh, that's why they're successful. Well, I think I like intellectually or theoretically appreciated the power of brand, but it's not until you're immersed inside of the greatest brand or among the greatest brands on the sure, planet sure. that you we'll appreciate that. the kind of stewardship that comes in creating a brand that matters. I, uh, just before he passed away, I had this opportunity to sit in a room with Steve Jobs and wow. he was having a conversation about this idea that every single time we have an interaction with anyone, whether it's personally or our product, that we are having one of two things happen with that other person. They are either having a deposit, their opinion of you is reinforced or made better, or they're having a withdrawal. You have not lived up to the expectation that they had in the absence of that expectation being met. You now have them thinking less of you. And the thing that has to happen to be able to build the kind of brand that exists in a Disney or a Marvel or a Pixar or a Lucas is consistency and frequency of deposits over time. And that's something that takes unbelievable amount of work, attention to quality, a, a willingness to say no at short-term cash grabs for long-term gain or long-term equity that might exist with the consumer. And so something like that was something that, uh, you know, the younger version, the 27-year-old version of me could have never fully appreciate it until you're immersed inside of it. Um, so that's one thing I would say. Two, as much as I'd had 
intermittent experiences with great leadership, I, I don't know that I appreciated the difference that exists when you are present to unbelievable leadership and the way that it creates momentum and affords people uh, feelings of autonomy to go pursue what they need to pursue uh, relative to when it doesn't necessarily exist. And I, and for me anyway, especially near the end of my career, between the head of studio, a person named Alan Horn, who'd been in the business for decades, decades and decades and decades, he um, was just so wise and smart, but also had an empathy gene and an interpersonal ability to manage and maintain relationships. He met people where they were um, that saw them, but also empowered them to lead their businesses in a way that said, I will support you. I will give you leeway to make recommendations and will even stand by you at times when I don't totally agree with your perspective. And if I don't agree with your perspective, I'll find ways to respectfully engage in a conversation that doesn't leave you feeling demeaned or demoralized, but also had an opportunity uh, on many occasions to witness Bob Iger, who I'm just going to argue is among the best leaders that have ever led an organization. Um, I mean, this is a, an interesting story about my departure, but I think it's one that in some ways is representative of the kind of quality of leader that he is. I had signed a contract, which was a thing that earlier in my career, I was so driven by certainty and knowing that I could provide for my family that the idea of signing a multi-year contract was something that I wanted so badly. It happened earlier in my career. And as it came time to renew and I found myself in this weird space, bizarrely, the kind of discontent, I know there's privilege in being able to be discontented sure. in such a great job. And yet here I was not as fulfilled as I thought I ought to be about this job, but I still signed the deal. But when I came to that conclusion of, man, I have to make a decision to leave something that few will so that I can move from career to calling. I need to move into something that I need relative to something that I've known. I had to go ask permission because I'd made a commitment to be there for what at that point was another three and a half of four years on a deal. And when I walked into his office, I walked in and he started the conversation with a simple question. He said, hey, Dave, is there anything that I could do that would change your mind about your interest in leaving? And I said, you know, I appreciate that you're asking, but this is something that I, I just feel like I have to do. I have to do it for my family. I have to do it for what feels like honoring the intention of a creator who put me here for something different. Um, but I also have to just do it for me because I am, I'm dying a little bit right now and I need to live. And he said, well, hey, that's great. Then we don't need to have another conversation about any of it. But with the time that we have, would you sit down and tell me about what you're going to go do? Because I want to cheer for you as you leave. Oh my God. And I was like, holy goodness. <laughs> right. Like I hadn't slept for weeks leading into you're meeting Bob Iger because I'm meeting Bob Iger to ask him if he would be generous enough to allow me to leave. And he was so generous and it changed completely the tenor of how I ended up spending what was five or so months worth of time that I might bridge me leaving to train a replacement and take care of the filmmakers that already had films on the calendar. Like it just changed everything because he understood, Hey, if you can't change the person's mind, you might as well be supportive of their decision to leave, which, Oh, I hope I can emulate that at some point, every point in my leadership journey myself. 
Man, that's incredible. And I want to get to the rest of the story. But if you're okay, I'd like to pick out a couple of other things about your time at Disney. Because yeah. A couple of things you said really piqued my attention. So one is, you said it's a relationship business. What, the, what does that mean? Like some of these guys have, like you say, they could be your dads or your moms running the business. They've got two, three decades on you. You know, I hear it's about who you know, not what you know. Like, what do you mean by relationship business? Because you brought a very different approach. Yeah. Well, if I had to describe what I did as head of sales, I think the first thing I might say in the descriptor is stakeholder manager. I was managing stakeholders and understanding the dynamic that might exist between me as someone who might be able to afford a solution to them that appreciated their individual set of needs is how I might be most successful as a leader of this team. I had five, six, maybe even seven different groups of stakeholders, all of whom had very different needs, which meant that the solutions that I needed to provide as this head of sales were different and catered specifically to each of them. So uh, I had the executive team. So, you know, Bob Iger or, or Alan Horn or any of the leaders inside of the corporate environment, they had a specific set of needs. They were focused on shareholder value. They were focused on returning capital invested in films. They wanted to understand what the implications of an opening weekend might be on how we would think about profitability or loss. And so a lot of what I would do in reporting or conversations focused on, all right, how can I, with the strengths I have, with my analytics team, solve those kind of needs? There were the production companies. So your Marvel, your Lucas, your Pixar, your Disney, each of them were run by illustrious, unbelievable creatives and Kathy Kennedy or John Lasseter or Kevin Feige. And they have a different kind of set of needs because their primary focus, though of course they're interested in financial results, they were interested in their creative being received in a way that would reinforce that brand deposit. And so part of the responsibility I had was being part of early screenings of the films and at times providing insight into how my partners on the exhibition side, the movie theaters, might respond to one kind of creative approach or another. How the in-theater marketing team that I managed would take their creative and bring it to consumers and trying to get them to be excited about their take on how to best engage a consumer to spend their time and their money walking into a movie theater. And so they had a different set of needs. I had uh, the responsibility of managing the press for the last seven years of time. Yeah, yeah. And so, right, the needs that they had were, of course, to write a story about our films. But I was also trying to satisfy uh, spin, sounds like a strange word, but I was, I was, uh, curating a conversation about how well our films were doing relative to our expectations in a way that might have those press people writing stories that were favorable about the company or the brand or the filmmaker. And so the way that I might have a conversation with them about performance was obviously different than the way I might have a conversation with Bob Iger or Alan Horn or whoever it might be. My team were stakeholders. They needed certain things, often not my insight. They often needed to represent the places where they were getting stuck and have me act in a capacity as a leader to keep those things that might distract them from getting their job done from infiltrating the conversations that they were having. The, the, the cinema owners or the, the exhibitors, they were stakeholders. Um, interestingly, like that as a relationship business is something that evolved over my tenure. 
in that when you have a studio that's middle of the pack, that has good years and bad years, good films and bad films, the necessity to manage relationships, I'm going to argue, is a little bit higher. You don't have yeah, the yeah. Uh, opportunity, as it were, to lean on leverage the way that you might when the Lucas and Marvel deals are finished and we're putting uh, Avengers and Star Wars films into theaters, the tenor of the conversation and the importance of whether or not I've golfed with you recently or not tends to be somewhat diminished. And yeah. yet I was managing a team of people who for most, to the most part, they'd been there for 25, 30 years. The tenure at Disney was unbelievable. And so they have muscle memory around lean years. They have muscle memory around trying to sell wild hogs with John Travolta on a motorcycle, not <laughs> Avengers with Chris Pratt. And, you know, like, so it's a different kind of thing that sometimes required the lunches and the dinners and the time on a golf course and whatever else. And, um, and I was just, I was the beneficiary of unprecedented leverage that allowed us to create unbelievably great deals, but also came with not having to necessarily lean as much on some of the relationship aspects that has, had historically existed. So um, relationship management was one of those things. I, mean, I guess the last group is filmmakers and the filmmaking group in particular was the one that likely took the longest amount of time to build rapport with because of frequency. You know, if you're a filmmaker, you're only making a movie every couple of years. And so it took me until that sixth or seventh year as sales head to have a shorthand with a guy like John Favreau, who had made now three movies with us, who'd had two previous good experiences where his interests in large format screens, he's just a cinephile. He wanted to make sure that picture looked perfect. And part of my responsibility was ensuring that his creation showed up as well as it ought to inside of a movie theater. Well, if you have a couple laps around the sun showing him that, hey, your interests are mine, when you say this is important, I'm going to make sure that it happens. The third time you sit in a room with them, you don't have to start from the word go. You're now starting with some inertia and some, uh, you know, connecting tissue to the last positive experience. But those things just, you know, those things take time. Sounds like uh, you went in as a young leader with a lot of relational intelligence, like just being able to sense that and knowing that one size doesn't fit all. That's a really helpful lesson. When you, There's a lot of senior leaders who listen to this podcast, but I'm thinking about all the young leaders who are cast into that middle role or, you know, they're director, but they're not the senior or they have a department. And that makes a lot of sense because you're leading up, you're leading across, you're leading down, you're leading around. And uh, boy, that's, uh, that's definitely helpful. Just throw this in. Not that you're my therapist, though. I'd be happy to take you uh, on and pay you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, pay my own therapist. But uh, it is my super strength and also my greatest weakness. An ability to walk into a room and know what that room needs and become what that room needs. And so when it comes to leadership or sales or managing relationships where each of those individual stakeholder buckets have differing sets of needs that I need to adjust my strengths for, it's a superpower. But outside of business, I'll admit that that bleeds into sometimes what has been me becoming who I think the friendship circle needs, the relationship needs, sometimes at the expense of me actually being myself which has been in some ways 
an inhibitor for real intimacy. I, I know this is a hard left turn from no, this having is a good. conversation around business, but I do think it's, you know, like if someone who's listening has this as a strength in the office, my, my kind of caveat or my, my, uh, my warning would be just make sure that it doesn't become something that has you as a chameleon, never, ever showing anyone who you really are, lest you uh, leave yourself unavailable for real intimacy from what it might mean for someone to see you, the real you, and love you or decide not to love you, which is also an okay thing. But um, being loved and seen for who you are, for me, has been one of these transformative things in the last handful of years, in part enabled by stepping away from environments where I was always trying to uh, become what the room, what the press, what the filmmaker, what the executive needed me to be. Well, anyone who's ever gotten behind a microphone knows a little of that tension. Are you, are you, your Enneagram type? What, not that it solves everything, but do you well, know your type? I'm a three, but I'm, I question it now more than ever because I am now spending a little bit more time trying to understand why achievement as a part of wiring existed. And if in now deconstructing a bit of why it existed, if it's actually real in the way that I've previously afforded it weight. Like I oh, very wow. much had this relationship where if I could get the best grades, if I could memorize the most Bible verses, if I scored the most goals, then, but only after then, would I be enough, worthy, seen, loved. And I understand that that comes out of programming or relationships that aren't truth. And so now that I'm discovering truth, I'm trying to ask like, okay, just because I was programmed in some ways that way, is it truly the root of how I'm motivated or is it a byproduct of how I felt like I needed to show up to get the thing I wanted most from the people I craved love from most? Those are really deep questions. Do you <laughs> think that was some of the angst you were feeling? Because yeah, you're right. Like the ability to adapt, you're going to, you want to be the same person wherever you go, right? So I I want to have an integrous whole of who I am. And I want my on stage to be very similar to my off stage, my off mic to my on mic. And that's something that is a goal, but also I think an expression of what I believe in who I am. Yep. But we also are astute enough to know the way you talk to a neighbor is different than the way you talk to a wife is different than the way you talk to your parents is different than the way you talk to a stranger. And hopefully it all has integrity, but yeah, there is a situation of where you're doing adaptive learning. But I can see, I wondered about a three, Dave, because I can see I have a lot, some of my best friends are threes. And I'm an eight, but I can feel the tension almost like I need to perform, I can't fail, I've got to be there. It can almost become chameleon-like. Do you think some of that was fueling the angst that caused your departure or that hot tub moment? Or I do. Oh, no, yeah. I do. What's interesting hmm. is I do and then in the decision to leave, step into a space where working inside of a company that was about putting tools in people's hands, feeling called into a space that might have me also create on behalf of that company to also put tools in hands through books or podcasts or social or coaching had me having to deviate from so much of the muscle memory that had existed and now transparently telling the stories of my struggle or owning the sources of my shame. And as much as I know the work is good and connects me to an audience that hopefully sees some of themselves in my stories, it's also unbelievably triggering 
to do something that is so different than how I was for the majority of my adult life. And so uh, I do believe that in that state of integrity, I feel better about myself when I'm by myself, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still uncomfortable. <laughs> hmm. So you mean where you are right now? Yeah. You're, you've got a lot of muscle memory about, oh, I should do this, or I should say this, or I should fit in. And you're learning not to? I'm just trying to clarify a little bit. Definitely learning not to. I mean, I, the, the, the work that I've done in writing a book, the first book I wrote was called Get Out of Your Own Way. And it was basically 20 chapters of things that I did that weren't great, that in having done them taught me lessons or lies that I'd believed, that in believing those lies kept me stuck or in my own way. And the, the, the ability to have those conversations in so many ways freed me from the shame that had previously been somewhat of a shackle in keeping those things hidden because struggle thrives in the dark. But also it's still hard at times, mm. especially in a social media world that has so much curating happening all the time of how great and good things are, trust me, they are, to be really honest about the places that we're still a work in progress. And yet, you know, work in progress uh, it happens to be the, hey, Dave, describe yourself in three words. Those are my three words. I am a work in progress. Now, mm. I had interestingly, a negative association with the idea of being a work in progress. It was a pejorative, something that made me feel bad about myself for a long time because I liked people. I like to make people believe that I've got it handled. I've got it. I know it. I'm good. I already figured it all out. And yet in the work of this last three years worth of time, turning it into a badge of honor that like, hey, with a growth mindset and my willingness to fail publicly and learn and to always be putting myself into new situations, that is the definition of how I want to have the rest of my life unfold. And let me like, spoiler alert you in real time, I am not gonna get it right all the time. I'm gonna learn all the time from having put myself into situations where I don't yet have any developed mastery, but, I only developed mastery in my past by being a work in progress that knew it was going to take time and a bunch of mistakes. So this is the price of entry. If uh, you want somebody who's perfect, go believe the stories you might see on social. If you want somebody who's human, here I am. If it means that sometimes you're going to throw a rock or two, that's fine. I'm strong enough to handle the rocks. But also, this is who I am. And in probably in representing it, giving a little bit of permission for people to themselves feel normal in their own humanity, because all of us are works in progress. We just don't like to have to necessarily confront it or admit it as often as we ought to. You write in your new book that uh, a couple things, anxiety has been a frequent companion. Do you want to talk about that? There's so many, and I mean, the last two years, we'll get to 2020 in a minute and what you thought it was going to be and what it turned out to be. And thanks for letting us kind of go all over the map today. Oh, I'm really grateful absolutely. for Absolutely. I love this. No, no, no. I love yeah. it. Um, anxiety is a frequent companion. I hear from leaders every day and they're anxious. They're not sleeping. And I mean, obviously it's been a meat grinder now going on year three for everybody globally. But how has that been part of your journey, Dave? Yeah, I mean... Part of, part of where anxiety took root in me was in a relationship to how certainty had been a North Star in my life. Right. I wanted more than anything 
to put my thumb on the scale or do things that I thought might change the way that I had control over outcomes and anxiety in a world where, of course, there's very little predictability in what might happen next, only how you might react to what might happen next. Uh, anxiety was something that had my brain rushing to all of the outcomes that might happen, usually spending more time on the worst case scenario outcomes that might happen and thinking in some bizarre way that if I were to uh, really dive into them, spend time with them, have sleeplessness over them, that I might uh, affect them in a way that only through therapy, to be honest, I, I've really had this unbelievable experience in the last year and a half where my relationship with anxiety has been changed because of the gift of appreciating that I am not my anxiety, but the observer of it. So like mm -hmm. in a very untethered soul kind of way, if you've read the book, I, I know I'm jumping ahead just a bit, but no, in, the midst of, in the midst of getting a divorce in 2020, a thing that I did not uh, anticipate would ever happen in my lifetime and that just shook me identity-wise, where I'd identified primarily as her husband and had a business that we'd been operating together that I thought we'd work in for a uh, long time, rest of time. Uh, I had to find myself when I no longer knew who I was now that I wasn't who I'd been. And so I mm. found this interesting therapy called internal family systems that is really the study of self and the way that we as self have a relationship with parts of us. And anxiety, as it turns out, uh, ends up just being a part and this ability for me to separate myself from it when I now get anxious doesn't make me feel anxious, but makes me as self aware of this part presenting itself because of it believing it is doing me something helpful in having shown up. And so in wow. a very weird way, I'll just like for the listener, this might be the part where you roll your eyes. I rolled my eyes when I was introduced to the therapy myself, and yet it's been unbelievably powerful in my life. I recognize my anxiety now by name. His name is Clark. <laughs> Clark, when Clark shows up, is invited to sit at a table in my mind, and I actually engage, like a mildly crazy person, in an actual conversation with this anxiety in an attempt as an investigator to understand why Clark believes he's been called into duty. And in this conversation now, I am not the anxiety, I am the witness to it, I get to have a conversation to understand why he's here. And most of the time, my anxiety, Clark, shows up and represents this. Hey, Dave, there is a part of your life that has just a little too much ambiguity around it. And my job is to draw your focus to that ambiguity such that if you were to pay attention to it, you might create a plan, something that has structure, system, people, something that would address the ambiguity in a way that now with that plan alleviates my need to be here and has me having satisfied the role that I was here to play, helping you create a plan. And, and my, I wrote it in the book, the antidote to fear is a plan. The antidote to anxiety is a plan. And Clark's mm. job is to help me develop that antidote by just representing that here's why I'm here. And the great thing is, not that I necessarily want to have to sit with my feelings, you can do this same exercise for anything that you feel, right? And ask, why have you presented yourself? What role do you believe yourself to be playing this feeling, this emotion, whatever it is, positive or negative? The negative emotions do not appreciate that they are negative. They only mm. think that they are here to help you. 
They only think that they are there to play a role. And if you can now engage in this conversation, it just fundamentally flips this relationship with anxiety or fear or sadness or grief or whatever it might be and allows you in that relationship to deconstruct what role they think they're playing so that you might be able to either have a plan, a new person, a set of resources that you're now leaning on that would change the way that you are able to heal or move forward or build more confidence or self-worth or whatever it is that the hoped-for outcome ends up being. Any particular reason you called anxiety Clark? Is it like uh, just a, a name you like or something significant historically, a schoolyard well, bully or... Clark wears his glasses, and when I'm able to alleviate Clark from its existence, then I get to take those glasses off, and I get to become Superman. And so uh, Clark, ah, <laughs> Clark represented the very human uh, parts of me, which I want to honor. Yep, good work, Clark. You're here, but also I have an appetite for being super. And so if I can disarm Clark from him feeling like he needs to be present, then I get to be super in a way that uh, when I'm anxiety overridden, uh, I don't necessarily feel. That's brilliant. <laughs> when, when you're struggling with anxiety before you got to this latest chapter, was self-medication involved? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. How, how did that show up in your life, Dave? Yeah. I mean, Coping mechanisms are a thing that uh, all of us end up having. Some are positive, some are negative. Mm -hmm. I uh, certainly, at that uh, endo time at the Walt Disney Company, when I'd stopped growing, I'm now dying, uh, medicating with drink was really the way that I was trying to mute the feelings that were present because I didn't want to have to deal with them. And I didn't at the time have the resources to understand how to deal with them productively. And so I would just try to escape. And that escape would come from having, you know, at first a couple drinks a night to a couple more drinks a night, playing video games in a way that was just like, I know I have a family, but also I'll just be over here. And it was, again, like me just not showing up for life in the way that they deserved and the way that made me feel proud about myself when I was by myself. And the, the tipping point was this kind of like look in the mirror, integrity conversation of, you know, who would I have to show up as to be the person I'm meant to become, to be this person that God's created me to be, to be someone who could be proud of himself when he's by himself and really diving into for the first time, the world of personal development, reading a book like Power of Habit to understand mm. the habit loop and recognizing that, hey, the triggers are always going to be there, but changing the routine to get the same kind of reward that you're hoping for is the way. And so um, I didn't self-identify as someone who was into fitness. I didn't self-identify as someone who was a runner. And when I decided, you know what, this is not a long-term sustainable plan. Uh, I'd like to be a dad that my kids are proud of, that models who they ought to grow up as. I want to be someone that uh, honors the intention of a creator who put me here for reasons far greater than muting the things I don't like to feel or think about. Uh, I put on some shoes and I started running and I uh, at first ran short distances at slow paces. And then over time, I ran thousands of miles a year because uh, the triggers didn't go away. Uh, but my desire to try and process the triggers in a more productive way were more present as I was able to receive the benefits of having swapped out negative for positive coping mechanisms. So one, and like if you're listening and you're someone who self-medicates, um, that's part of your humanity. Like there's a normalness yeah. in it. But it's also, I want to say, 
Um, it's suffering that you are familiar with. And I can say that uh, one of the things that is unfortunately a byproduct of our humanity is this attraction to comfort, even if comfort is killing us, right? Like we become comfortable with suffering that we know because in this desire to predict outcomes, there's predictability in staying inside of suffering that we have become familiar with. We know what it's going to do. And it's hard sometimes to have the courage to leave what we know for what we need. So mm. understand that your, your suffering, your decision to medicate or to, to live inside of something that has negative coping mechanisms, in some ways is a choice of humanity, a choice of decision to stay in familiar and comfortable, but also a decision to stay inside of suffering you know. And life is yeah. not meant to be lived inside of suffering. It's just not. So you write in the book that uh, you were convinced 2020 was going to be your best year ever. So many leaders listening to this had their 2020 vision that they'd been working on for a decade, right? And it was going to be a new epoch and everything. And obviously it didn't turn out that way for humanity, but there was a lot of personal challenges that just kind of erupted for you and for Rachel in 2020. Can you walk us through what happened, Dave? Yeah, well, I'll start at the end of 2019. I was on the cusp of what felt like me stepping into a new chapter, calling, purpose. I had never previously published a book and had one coming out. I'd never previously done coaching. I'm getting ready to. I'd never previously had a podcast of my own. It's about to happen. And all of these things have convinced me that 2020 is going to be my best year ever. And, and you I had stepped out of Disney when? 20... 2018. So like mid-2018. So you'd been in almost two years, year and a yeah, half. Yeah, mid-2018, mid, mid, mid I've stepped out of Disney. The decision was made in September of 17. I let Disney know in January of 18. Started kind of working on both sides, finishing my time at Disney and preparing for what was our building, the Hollis Company, together at the beginning of 18. But by the time that some of the scaling had happened and the success that, had, that, that ultimately followed in 18 and 19, it felt like, hey, there's some opportunity here for me to use some of the gifts that I've been given. I want to help load balance what feels like heavy carrying for Rachel, who was the primary voice and featured talent of the company. And I was excited about it. I stood at our company Christmas party and I made this bold declaration. 2020 is going to be my best year ever. I'd saved it for my 45th year on the planet. I've had some good years, so the bar's high, but this is going to be my best year ever. And what I didn't appreciate in the declaration was that I wouldn't get a say in the conditions through which my best would be brought forward. Oh, wow. And as much as the ultimate, uh, you know, pandemic that we collectively experienced as a, as a crew. My book came out the week that uh, Tom Hanks got COVID, the NBA shut down, no more European travel. I remember travel. that week. We all I, remember that week. That week yeah. was a tough week because my book tour, 25 Cities, sold out, was uh, starting up that week. No more. Didn't happen. The uh, now two months later conversation that... Uh, felt uh, like the wind was being knocked out of me. Hey, uh, Rachel asked a, a, a serious but simple question. Do you believe that you can be the man that God intended you to be married to me? And it's, wow. uh, it began a quick, um, a quick end to our marriage. It was a very short amount of time that we ended up really diving into and spending time in the conversation. But uh, by the end of May, we had a conversation about this now being the end of us as a married couple and transitioning into something new. And 
What I didn't appreciate in, you know, December of 19, as I'm saying, I'm having my best year ever, was that that best would come in, uh, in part, not, not even in part, it would come not in spite of, but because of the way that you react to the hardest things that you have to experience. And I can say for my faith, you know, you say you have faith and it's not until you get forced to your knees that you get to truly see how strong your faith is. It's not until your identity, the person that you've known yourself most as, husband to her, or the business identity I had, hey, we put, the, put this company together, we're working on it now and forever, it's gone. Uh, it's not until those things are gone that you really get an invitation with this now blank piece of paper that you've been handed to decide how you fill out the rest of what this life of yours is going to look like. And that, I describe it in the book, it's, it's exhilarating and terrifying. At the beginning, wildly more terrifying than exhilarating. But um, I'd say the, the biggest casualty at the beginning of this journey of becoming, for me, was the casualty of my imagination. Because fear was overwhelming me in a way that compromised my ability to see something hopeful in a future that now is different than it was supposed to be or going to be or that I thought always would be. And it took deconstructing that fear, making a relationship with that fear, bringing it into the light. I mean, I made this list through a stream of tears of 46 things that I was afraid of and had to deconstruct. Which of these are real and which are not? Which of the real ones can I build a plan for? Who could I surround myself with? What resources could I consume or content could I, you know, immerse myself in that might allow me to become courageous, not in a way that makes the fear go away, but prepared to face it as I'm now stepping into a part of the forest I've never walked through before. And, um, you know, my, my, my health became a priority. Uh, when I, my spiritual, mental, relational, uh, physical, uh, emotional health, all of them a priority because um, I didn't feel like getting out of bed. I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like doing anything. And, and it required creating something of a foundation there at the beginning just to create enough momentum that you could start to reignite that imagination for something hopeful to get excited about. There's a, there's a great quote. I've used it now in both of my books by Les Brown. It's uh, hope in the future is power in the present. Your ability to have a hopeful vision of the future is a thing that creates for you power, strength, confidence, belief in the present. But so often the circumstances of our present cloud our ability to cast a vision for the future that's anywhere near hopeful. And that's part of what keeps us stuck. And so I went on a mission to try and see the good that could come from the hard and, you know, in a Tony Robbins-esque kind of way, how is this happening for me and not to me? And, you know, God, I've been praying for these things. Why are these things happening? Only to come to realize that so many of my prayers were answered. I just ridiculously believed that I got a say in how they would be answered. And that's not the way it works. But, um, you know, it all unfolded over months and months worth of time in a way that now has me looking back with wild gratitude for things having happened the way that they did and an appreciation for the beauty in unanswered prayers or the beauty in not getting what you want or, you know, people have asked, sorry that I'm going kind of everywhere, but no, um, people have asked like, well, what was like one of the most important things? Or what's the most important thing? If you find yourself in a season where things feel completely against you, upside down, really hard, 
And one of the most important things, other than deconstructing my fear, focusing on something hopeful for the future, was the idea of faith. And as much as, yes, I'm a person of faith, I don't mean religious faith in this instance, as much as I mean faith that the things that you need in this journey will present themselves when you need them most. Like just having that as a belief, a conceit that this is a thing. And the opposite ends up being true too, right? If you end up believing that like life's against you and it's unfair and nothing ever happens the way that you'd hope for it too, um, either, either mindset you take on, you go out looking for evidence to support your hypothesis and yeah, you will find true. what you're looking for. And this isn't I'm like woo-woo manifesting. This is just practical reality. I went into each day believing that the things I needed on that day would present themselves in a way that would keep me going. And I got evidence of it in like micro miracles on the regular that just helped reinforce the circumstances of my present not being as bad as I might think, allowing me to start now casting a more hopeful vision for my future, dreaming again, writing on that blank piece of paper things that were exciting. But some of that evidence, I had a, I, my pastor, first eight weeks of this experience, sent me the same 11-word text Simple 11 words. If you have someone who's going through a hard time, I suggest you think of something like this. He just asked me, is there some small piece of sadness that I can hold for you today? Oh, wow. And what a good pastor, Dave. Good, pa good pastor, good, good 11 words. And here's the thing, like the beauty in it was, um, I see you, right? I am not interested in trying to minimize the experience of your experience. I'm not going to tell you that it's okay or it will be better or because I, I can't tell you. All I can tell you is that there is solidarity between us and the weight that you're carrying isn't a thing that you have to carry by yourself. I'm not going to try and, you know, fill that hole necessarily that you're walking through, but I will hold your hand as you walk into it. And that was just, gosh, it was just such a beautiful thing. But like instance after instance of these micro miracles would show up, not necessarily, by the way, when they were convenient to me, but absolutely 100% when they were needed most by me. And I think that like belief that you'll get the things that you need when you need them and you go on the, uh, just go out into your day looking for evidence. You end up finding that evidence. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing for me. Well, and I think one of the hard parts for you is pain is difficult, whether it's private or public. And, you know, I know when you left Disney, it actually made headlines like in all the national media. And then you and Rachel led a very public marriage, ministry, growing company. And I mean, I remember, I didn't know either of you personally at the time, but I remember when the news came, I remember the Instagram that said, we've decided to end our marriage. And I remember stopping dead in my tracks going, what? When you were, because, you know, this has been a hard season for a lot of leaders. And my wife, Tony, and I, we went through a really excruciating season about 16 years ago where it could have easily ended. And so I remember the pain of that. But you said it happened quickly. Like when you were sitting there at the Christmas party in 2019, if someone had said, hey, Dave, in five months, you and Rachel are calling it quits, would you believe them? Like, were there signs there? Absolutely not. I mean, the Whoa. thing is that, yeah, I mean, there, like we'd, we'd been having regular conversations about the things that married couples have conversations about. So there, there certainly were things that like any couple, we in an interest of having a relationship that works, we're talking through. Sure. Uh, 
But it just hadn't been, it hadn't been a topic. Of I, I have an irritant today in my marriage and apparently I'm that irritant. So I right? get it. Yeah. You're having those, those conversations. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I would have, I would have fought that person, not like physically, but I would have argued against it. Like we had like a, no way you're wrong. Yeah. We have some problems, like, but Hey, we're going to get through it. It just, it wouldn't, uh, it didn't make, here's the thing. It didn't make sense to me in the midst of the conversation and it's only now, this is going to sound crazy. Here's the thing. I would have fought for the yeah, rest yeah. of my natural life to stay married. And I believe in the sanctity of marriage. And I would counsel anyone who's having marital problems to also fight for the rest of their life to remain married. And I also, on the other side of divorce, have a, a perspective of how different my life will be, how much more I do believe I will be able to live into who God created me to be how much happier I will be, she will be, our children will be, how much actually a better relationship we will have over time because of the divorce. And I have hmm. a hard time reconciling those two things because yeah. I was raised in the church and I believe in marriage and I, want, I don't want anyone to ever get divorced, literally ever. And my life is different in good ways because of it. And I, again, I just, I don't know how to reconcile those two things. And uh, it's part of what makes it so complicated, especially, I mean, here we are in the middle of the holiday. We're recording this just before Christmas, and this will be yeah. the first Christmas that I am not with my children on Christmas morning. It's going to make me cry a little oh, bit, but it's, uh, yeah. it's an interesting thing to understand the good that comes in this hard, but also be confronted on the regular by grief that never, ever totally goes away. It just changes form and frequency over time. And that's, gosh, it's so hard to kind of like hold all of those things, but that's part of life. That's part of, uh, you know, all of it is the idea of both, that you can be both uh, hopeful and grieving, that you're still healing. Uh, and that's a thing that'll happen over the course of the rest of time. Because it was such a public, uh, and I appreciate you sharing this, by the way, Dave, thank you so much oh, for being course. so open. But, you know, because it was such a public relationship, you also got pummeled on the announcement. <laughs> oh, and yeah. just yeah. lacerated on social. And to every pastor listening, you know these sheep bite, right? And that's what happens in the Christian community. We shoot our wounded. How did you, I know you can speak for you, not Rachel, but how did you and Rachel navigate that when you just got hammered? I'm sure you got some support, but I'm going to guess that the criticism was louder than the the, uh, yeah. the reach outs. Um. So the interesting thing about the internet, it's a lesson that keeps being taught. Um, as much as I value the community of people that I get to spend time with on the internet so much, and I feel so connected and loved and filled up by so many of the interactions, it also isn't real. <laughs> and and, the, and the, the times when you get to learn that lesson most is when the internet decides to turn on you or a subset of the internet decides to turn on you and in doing so invites you to step away from the internet, right? So like we took some time to not be on devices, to not be on social. So the pummeling that you describe for us was a tree falling in the forest without us being there to hear it. Did it make a sound? Oh, and, interesting. Because I don't follow that stuff. Like, I, I can't even say I looked at the Instagram or, you know, Facebook threads or anything like that. I just 
remember the initial comments to the post. Yeah. But you're right. You just, so you just tuned that out. You blocked it out. What ends up happening is you can consume all of it and it can become your reality or you can huddle with your kids who you're now holding their hand through their own trauma experience of this news that also was a surprise to them and spend time in the pool out back or barbecuing or running, listening to a sermon or sitting on a rock in nature, having a conversation with a God who's strong enough to hear your screams of frustration. Or you can spend time wondering how the internet feels about literally anything that they might disagree with. So that's part of it. The other part is um, anyone who's writing a comment about anything isn't in the arena so they are by nature a spectator. And so the spectator gets to boo or cheer or root or scream, but they aren't playing the game. And so part of what you have to inevitably also remind yourself of is they weren't in our relationship. They weren't in our head. They don't understand so many of the things. And so, um, you know, what you'd wish is that, man, there could just be some compassion for the humans that are actually yes. inside <laughs> yes. this relationship. Because guess what? As it turns out, of course, we are very much human, very much have feelings, very much would, you know, like appreciate decency and kindness over judgment and, and ridicule. Um, what was hard also, I mean, you bring it up and in acknowledging the pastor community that lives here, um, you know, there was a special depth of critical response from people whose bios had Jesus follower in the header. And so that's a real problem for the church, Dave. I'm as somebody who's involved in the church, invested in the church, founded a church. Some of the most hateful things I've ever read in my life. And by the grace of God, they're often not directed at me, although I've had my share. I'm like, how can you be a Christ follower? Like what? At least strip that off your bio. Pretend yeah. to be a Satanist, okay? Just pretend or or <laughs> total atheist or something. But like, stop dragging Jesus into this. Sorry, yeah. I cut you off, but keep going no, with that. No. Like, but it's it's like the, like, huh, is there uh, any correlation between church attendance and cancel culture or vitriol by humans who also proclaim to be believers? I'm going to argue there could be because... If you're not a believer and you see the way that believers treat their own, what invitation is that for you to have curiosity around what it might mean to step inside of that circle? Like, thank you, but no thank you is more likely the response from someone who could have, by the way, had some curiosity, but then finds themselves inside of the toxicity of that kind of reaction and changes the way that they think. So it's, it, you know, it's frustrating. It also kind of is what it is, but um, part of part of part of any of this ends up being this reality that the price of impact is criticism. Right? Mm. I, the the ability to do the work that I am fortunate to get to do, or have a community that I'm able to hopefully use the talents and gifts that I've been given to gift them to other people, comes with the promise that there will be people that absolutely are not interested in this message, and sometimes decide to very vocally express their distaste, dislike, hatred, whatever it is. But part of like the work that I think any of us as creators have to do is to remember, number one, we are not free ice cream. I am not free ice cream. I mean, there's even lactose intolerant people who aren't going to like me because of the fact that it makes them sick. But 
We're not, <laughs> we're not for everyone. So there's like freedom, hopefully, in releasing yourself from any conceit or belief that you are going to create something or be something or say something that is universally loved. It is an impossibility uh, anytime, but it's certainly an impossibility in 2021. It's just that those days, they are gone. But also, anytime anyone wants to create anything of matter, impact, um, say you're trying to create it for 100 people, and 90 of them could be positively affected, but 10 would be vocally critical. Often, our fear, our humanity says, well, don't create it, man. Don't do it. Yeah, yeah. Because you got you those 10 who are in you your inbox. Wanna, yeah, yeah, you don't want to endure the wrath of 10. And what more often than not happens is the people who have the time to dedicate to trolling are a small but vocal group. They disproportionately hit our radar because we are drawn to things that feel like they are attacking us. Yeah. And so we tend to, at the expense of the 90 who would be the beneficiaries of the goodness of our work, we don't create because of the 10 that might try to tear us apart. I've got a very special community. I call them my greatest fans inside of places like Reddit or YouTube who spend inordinate amount of times destroying me. I have no idea what they're saying because I don't want to waste my time reading any of it. It doesn't matter to me. They're not in my life. They're around my life. Go to town. But I call them fans because the only way anyone would spend that kind of time is if there's some distorted, contorted version of love or affection that might exist that makes them want to spend two and three hours of their day uh, just in hate. And that's, you know, like, that's part of what this society of divisiveness and arguing and comments has ultimately become. And it doesn't, it doesn't make it as easy necessarily to create. But if you get pulled into waiting until there isn't criticism or waiting until you can make something that isn't going to draw the ire of someone, you'll never make anything. You'll never create anything. I'll come back to this thing. I keep saying like my mission online in life is to honor the intention of a creator who put me here for very specific reasons. And those reasons are reasons that I know that I feel in my gut that I know I've been called into that other people who might be critical of them didn't get the call. They didn't get the gifts. They didn't get the conversation in prayer. They didn't get the intuition that keeps reinforcing that this is the thing I meant to do. Well, if they didn't get the call, then they can question the call, but it's my job to heed the call. And that's the thing I got to do irrespective of the kind of criticism that comes. Well, that's a really good word for leaders who I hear from pretty much every day who have been more beat up, more criticized, and not necessarily because of divorce, but just because they're leading and they said the wrong thing or the right thing the wrong way, or they said, didn't say enough, or they said too much or whatever, and have just been pummeled in their own way in the last couple of years that have left a lot defeated, a lot discouraged, and a lot of people walking away, to be honest with you. But what I, what I detect in you and you know through a mutual friend, John Acuff, is you know you're you're finding some joy. You're finding that. What what do you um, and and the criticism is not determine. It's not going to define your life. And the 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 challenges of a few years ago aren't going to be the defining characteristic. Because I think often, Dave, what happens is we run into a discouragement. Let's pick. You get fired, or you lose a career, or you end up with an addiction. And you're like, well, this is my lot in life, I guess. I got to put in 40 more years. <laughs> but I, I, I see um, 
some joy in your step. What would you say at this point you discern your calling to be? You've you've hinted at it two or three times. I'd love for you to just spell it out because that yeah. seems to be fueling your future. Yeah. Part of so, it. So what's interesting is the the beauty in destruction of what you've known is freedom to define or reconnect with who you're supposed to be in the absence of who you've been. There's Ooh. a great line from Fight Club, Tyler Durden. It's only yeah. once we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. And that is true freedom, right? Like I didn't want to have to lose things. In the book, I reference, you know, spending time thinking about the way Lazarus had to die to be brought back to life. And in that conversation, it provoked in me a question of, hey, Dave, what might have to die in your life for you to be brought back to life? And as it turned out, relationship and ego and normalcy and identity, like all of these things had to die. And in the ashes, I was able to reconnect with who did you want to be before you became who you become? And that is a question for anyone who's feeling stuck or disconnected from purpose or not close to calling. I'd offer that you spend a little bit of time asking. I had a God moment in the midst of this window where I was attempting to step into something new. I found myself sat on a plane next to Dan Rather. Oh, wow. To, to give an idea of how nerdy I was growing up, Dan Rather was my childhood hero. Uh, so I was so excited, broke every uh, plane protocol in the book and uh, sat down asking if we could have a conversation. He was very generous. And for like two full hours, we just sat and chatted. It was amazing. And I got off the airplane and it was one of these times where I was like, oh my goodness, I have actually been reminded of who I wanted to be before I became who I've become that kid who was going to Pepperdine and had an anchor job at the local station and a DJ job at a 2 a.m. slot because of how much I was interested in reporting and broadcasting, that's who, that's who I was excited about being when I was growing up. And it's something I've always been excited about. I've woven it into the way that I present in sales meetings or manage things through public relations. But like, I have been a reporter and I find myself now as I'm defining what I do as much as it's difficult for my 100-year-old grandma Lee to necessarily understand. She asks me all the time, Dave, do you have a job? Do you have a career? Should we be, should we be worried? Like, grandma, you're holding a book I wrote in, in your hand. Like, I am working. Thank you. Uh, but the thing I would say to her is, I'm a reporter. I take the collective experiences of my life, of the career that I've had, of the people that I've been influenced positively by, and try to aggregate that information into storytelling, into teachable, you know, work, uh, workshopping kind of things, whether it's in coaching or uh, through a framework that I might put into a book in a way that in that reporting might afford them a breakthrough, might give them information, might change the way that they think about what's possible in their life or believing in themselves. And that's what I do. And what I'm, what's really interesting in real time is as much as I've done it recently inside of personal development, and we'll probably, because I am into personal development, continue to do work inside of it, reporting isn't exclusive to a genre. And so right. I'm- It doesn't have to be at a network TV station. It doesn't have to be network TV. It doesn't even have to be in quote unquote personal development per se. I am in real time trying to find additional places where I have passion. And the entry, the on-ramp for passion is curiosity. So I've just attempted to, part of the, like the joy or the fun or the whatever it is that you might like see or sense is me trying a bunch of things that 
I don't know that I would have necessarily tried before because of something of a the confines of being in a rhythm and a normal that you think is the way you're supposed to be. In the absence of that normal or that way to be existing, it's been an invitation to say yes to things that I didn't even think that I might try. So in real time, I'll give you an example. I have been, one, I've been in a relationship with someone who happens to work in fitness, but I have just jumped into fitness and understanding the way that bodybuilding works and understanding the way that nutrition works in a way that I never have before. And I'm not sure that there's something for me professionally per se, but I do know that I have some passion inside of the space of transformation and that I thought previously it was limited to what you can do in changing your mindset or your leadership style. But I have, I've had some experience in, oh, wow, I can build muscle. I can actually change the way that I feel about myself inside because of some of the way that I'm developing strength on the outside. And that has been super exciting. Now, what does it mean? I don't know what it means. I just know <laughs> that I dipped my toe inside of this new pool it was something that I just had some curiosity for, and that curiosity is leading to some short-term passion in a way that has me actually asking questions about what it might mean to enter a physique competition one day or what it might oh, mean, wow. to, right? Like serious stuff. Like I, <laughs> I had never done anything crazy in physical fitness or exertion necessarily, and after running my first marathon, a thing that happened in part because of that positive coping mechanism swap from booze to running, it changed the way I thought about what I could do physically. And it led to more running and climbing a mountain and ultimately getting into my first triathlon. I didn't do it perfectly. Open water swimming and me were at all. Oh, swimming is the worst. Right. Yeah. But um, putting myself into these situations was just born again out of like curiosity in the hopes that it might lead to passion. And so I'm a reporter that's the answer to question one. What I report on is going to, in some ways, be a byproduct of where my curiosity leads to passion so that I can be excited about the thing that I am reporting on, leveraging my passion and, and my strengths to have impact. And that's why I believe I'm here. Well, I appreciate that. And I can, I can feel, you know, the, the joy in your voice. And there's a lot of joyless leaders right now who are in the middle of it. There's also people who have been through a huge life change like you have, or who lost their job or who quit thinking it was voluntarily and it didn't work out very well for them. Um, and in your book uh, called Built Through Courage, you talk about five keys to developing resilience. Do you want to just bullet point those for a minute, Dave, or pick a couple of your favorites? We probably touched on them, but just to articulate, like, what are the keys to resilience? And then I want to talk to you. I thought you had some really good insights about leading well during crisis, which unfortunately we appear to be heading into year three of. Uh, so would love resilience. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, resilience generally is a thing that gets developed when things don't go our way. And so it's, it's, it tends to be a thing that is a byproduct of the way that you have to become resilient and it's in developing those muscles that you end up getting, getting there a little bit uh, faster. So for me, like resilience has really shown up in my willingness to step into new spaces, to try things that I haven't tried before, to do things that I know I will not be good at because of needing to not be good at them so I can develop something in mastery over time, or at least some acquisition of new skill. 
And so if there is someone who's like, how do I become more resilient? The first thing I would say is find a, find a way to put yourself into a situation that scares you. Uh, I mm. mean, I call it somewhat of a toe dip, but as we inside of our company, inside of Disney, we're ever looking to grow anyone as a leader. The thing we tended to have to have a conversation around was how their foundation was strong, but that their set of skills was not yet the thing that they were necessarily going to, um, that was not necessarily going to get them to the boardroom or the job that they were interested in, that it was going to take being resilient in trying to, uh, through exposure, have some new experiences, make them more ready. So I, you know, I would, I think I would, I would start with that. Um, leading through crisis is one of those interesting things in that, um, the thing that I think people need to be most conscientious of in the midst of crisis is this reality that the game has changed. And so the playbook has to change as well, because uh, I've been the person who was being led by a leader who tried to maintain the status quo and how they were doing things, whether it was the way they were bringing product to business or the culture inside the company or the way that they were even just leading, having a conversation about what was happening in a way that didn't necessarily acknowledge the, the reality of the reality. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm sure I could dig up somewhere in the attic, the, uh, VCR manual on how that thing works. But since we're not operating any here, that is an irrelevant document. That new playbook is necessary. And so the first thing I would do is just like, how do you need to shift some of the strategy, some of the way you're engaging employees? Um, so that's one. Two, um, honesty, like honest, like empathetic honesty. <laughs> something, something that acknowledges that the people that you are in a conversation with on your teams are experiencing something in the same way that you might be around anxiety or uncertainty or trauma or stress, but that also they need to have an honest conversation about what this crisis means to them and to the business. And so finding a way to thread that needle where you are bringing them enough information to honor them as adults being able to handle the reality of this thing that you are working your way through, um, but that you can do so with something of a plan that reflects that new playbook that gives them a degree of confidence and says, hey, I'm not just going to tell you about how bad it is, but I'm going to tell you these are the new things that we are facing in the world of headwinds. These are the new strategies that we're deploying to try and address these headwinds. I have empathy or appreciation for the way that you must be feeling and as, as, as a reflection of that feeling, we're also going to increase the number of touch points we have or have a circle where you're welcome to bring a little bit of how you're feeling on a weekly basis, but something that also provides a forum for them to feel seen and heard while they're also being educated in a way that acknowledges the truth of whatever it is that the organization's going through. So as we wrap up, Dave, um, there's some leader listening, probably more than a few, who are saying, oh, I'm having your May of 2020 right now. And their world is falling apart. Something's happened personally. Something's happened professionally. Or they're just at the end. They're like, it's not bad. I just don't know I can do this anymore. Having two years on the other side now, what would you say to that leader? 
Well, I, I got this tattoo. It's uh, kind of been the mantra of my life for the last five years of change, either change that I have chosen or change that has chosen me. Change is a constant for sure. And if you find yourself in the midst of change, especially if you're at the beginning of change and you don't yet have your imagination recovered to see the hopeful thing that sits on the other side of this change, this quote uh, has been something that's gotten me through a lot of hard days. It's a John Shedd quote. It says, a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. And I got the tattoo in the midst of this decision to leave the Walt Disney Company. This reminder that I could have just as easily chosen to stay inside of something that was safe or comfortable at the expense of me becoming who I was created to be. Uh, the decision, certainly not an easy decision, was one that had to acknowledge that growth and becoming and honoring the intention of my creator and everything that I'd hoped for in purpose and a connection to meaning lives outside of my safety, outside of my safe harbor. And there are times when you're going to make that choice. Yep, it's time for me to have some agency, take a big leap and get out there. And the thing that you have to remember, or if it's a choice that chooses you, you've lost a job, a relationship's ended and you didn't want it to. When you find yourself away from that out in those choppy seas, the reminder that you were built for this is where it starts to end. Because... Hmm. I, yeah, as much as I got this tattoo as a reminder that that choppy water, that discomfort is where I grow, I got it more than anything to remind me in the days that I don't believe it, but I was built to handle the chop. And there's going to be someone right now who's like, I don't, I don't want the chop. I don't, I don't feel comfortable in the chop. I, I wish that the chop didn't exist. Why is this chop here? The thing is, if you can convince yourself that you can handle the chop, that you were created for times such as these, that there uh, are forces bigger than you that already know the way that this experience is going to create something in you that you need for whatever ends up coming after it, then you'll be able to stand in it and keep some sense of equilibrium, even as the waves get choppy. But remember that it's the choppiness of the waves that are breaking down the muscle to make it stronger, that are testing hmm. so that you can develop that resilience and that grit and that tenacity. I, I don't want to experience 2020 again. I don't want to go through hard things again. And I don't get a choice. I am definitely going to go through hard things again. One of the gifts that I have in having gone through what I have and the gifts that we all have in collectively experiencing a 2020 that none of us want to repeat is an appreciation of how strong we were able to be going through conditions that we didn't choose. And some of that will come in this experience, again, as long as you can remember that you were built for that. Okay, Dave, if you got a couple more minutes, I do have one more question. And this is a little bit of a confession. So when you were talking in the middle of the interview about your divorce from Rachel, and you said, you know, I believe in the sanctity of marriage. I didn't see it coming. You know, Rachel's book as well. Uh, didn't see that coming, right? You, you you didn't see it. Here it is. And you're like, on the one hand, I believe in the sanctity of marriage. On the other hand, ours didn't make it. And, you know, I'm thinking back for 25 years of preaching and ministry. And I don't know whether it was for fear of, uh, uh, the question is about how those of us in ministry or Christians treat people who go through divorce. And there was a meaningful chunk of our church, no matter what time you look at it, where it was often people on the other side of divorce who would come. Rarely, occasionally, we had a couple in the church get divorced, but it was just 
hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people over the years who had been through divorce and found themselves at a church. And we were kind of known as a merciful church. And I was seen as merciful, but inside, I don't know that I was all that fair to divorced people. I never did or said anything. But I don't know whether that was like a projection of me being afraid of what was happening in my marriage. But I just want to know, you know, a little bit more about the people of Jesus and their bio, but crap all over you and, and that kind of thing. And I hope I never crapped all over someone who was divorced. I hope, but inside, I would say, you know, definitely mixed feelings about that. Any, like, just some, I don't even know what the question is. This is as much a confession as moving into a real thing, but we have this standard in the Christian church of one person for life, etc. And of course, we know that that just doesn't work out for a meaningful number of people. What are some ways we could better handle people who are going through divorce for those of us who have not been through that? I think that's my question. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So it's interesting. I have a podcast also. It's called Rise Together. And it attempts to try and take people who have an experience that you have not personally experienced, introduce them to the audience in a way that might create an empathy bridge that through this empathy bridge, you might have some of the sharper pieces or parts of your heart softened by appreciating the experience of their experience. And the thing I think I would say is I shared some of what you've just confessed to and Hmm. didn't myself have deep relationships with someone who has been divorced to understand the intricacies and nuances of it. I say this again, I'm not interested in glamorizing divorce. It sucks. Like truly it sucks. And yet I think I had opinions about people who were divorced and their decision-making process or the kind of people that they were without actually being in community with and doing life with them in a way that might have afforded me an empathy bridge. And so mm. I would say more than anything is like, you know, careful to throw stones if you yeah. aren't already in real life, personal relationship with people who've gone through this experience to understand a little bit of how and what and the humanity and, you know, kind of who, who they are as people. Um, you know, I'm a good person. I didn't want to get divorced. And I'm, you know, like happy to try and like share a little bit of the experience that I have been through if it helps humanize mm-hmm. a little bit of what it means. But it's also super complicated because I also grew up being taught a certain thing, um, you know, It doesn't, you know, in the midst of going through the the hardest personal crisis I've ever been through, layering shame on top doesn't necessarily make it easier. Having to worry about what people uh, who, you know, claim to uh, love your neighbor first are saying about you um, doesn't make it easier. And so, uh, you know, I hope that people could appreciate more than anything, maybe, that the decision for someone to get divorced is arguably going to be one of the most difficult things that someone, probably one, but not the other, but maybe both, but likely one of the people made the hardest decision of their entire life. And that in doing so introduced a depth of grief and pain and suffering that will never, ever completely heal, but that will, 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 and that if they're at the beginning of that journey, um, that, that hurts is deep. 
And if, um, if the person that you're talking about were diagnosed with cancer or were to have something else happen to them, is there something you might do to come alongside them to understand their journey or, 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 or at least extend um, what small piece of sadness can I hold for you today kind of grace? My mind was just going there, those 11 words. Uh, you know, that, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're now a massive advocate for divorce. It means that you're trying to be a reflection of the hands and feet of, feet of Christ. And, um, and, and I think that you can hold hmm. both. That you can, it still can be complicated, and you can still be decent. <laughs> I don't <laughs> mutually exclusive qualities. <laughs> That's what I needed to hear, Dave. That's what I needed to hear. And you know what? I don't think anyone I sat with in, in divorce when they were divorcing would have picked up on it, but it was like a little asterisk in my mind I needed to deal with. And this really helped with that. So this is my therapy, by the way. This is why I'm almost 500 episodes in. That'll be $140. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll Venmo you the money. No, but you know, the, the analogy that came to mind as, as we were talking about this was uh, prior to my burnout, burnout was the greatest pain point of my life. It happened almost 16 years ago in my life. And prior to that, when I was in my 30s, I just thought if you burned out, you're a weakling and you were dumb and, you know, ha ha ha, look at me, I'm so strong. And then one day my body quit and I'm like, oh my gosh. And in the last 16 years, I think I can honestly say with integrity, when someone says they're burning out, I have not once had a feeling of, oh, you idiot, or I'm just like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Let's sit down and talk. Let's, what happened? And oh, wow, don't give up hope, okay? This is not the end of your story. And yeah, I just, I just want to say thanks for helping me with that. I really appreciate that. I don't want there, even in the back of my mind, to be an asterisk. I mean, I, believe, I, I think you're right. It's a tension, right? And Jesus comes along and says, hey, I'm glad you're here. Yeah, by the way, you've had five husbands. Can we have a conversation? Right? You know, and no judgment. It's amazing. And how would, how would, and the other thought I had, I'll just get this off my chest and then we can finish up is why would one, none of us would like a thing that, you know, happened in our life that, you know, was, was just tough to be held over us for the rest of our life. I mean, I've had so many things go wrong in my life and to have this like one thing just hang over you. So I just want to say it's been a delightful conversation. It's been great getting to know you. All day, literally. This is well, I think we did. This is great. Like, are we at 90 minutes? I don't know, Dave. This is fantastic. So maybe it's around one. And the book is called Built Through Courage. And you do unpack. You're very transparent in it. You unpack a lot of what happened uh, over the years at Disney and also in your family and also the new chapter of your life. And uh, I just want to say I'm I'm really glad we had to reschedule this like two or three times, and I'm I'm really glad we made it happen. And I think there'll be a lot of people who uh, will be better off because they listened right through to the end. So if people want to connect with you these days, where do they find you online? The good people, by the way, all you trolls, stay away. Good, bad. Here's the thing. <laughs> Even the trolls. Here's the thing. I think that there yeah. is troll that is reached by a thing that they needed to hear every single day inside of my social world. And I'm happy to be present for them as much as someone who is a super fan. I am on, available mostly on Instagram. Mr. Dave Hollis is uh, my handle. I have a website, mrdavehollis.com. 
where you can find out all the things about all the things. Uh, I mentioned I do have this podcast. It's called Rise Together. It happens on Thursdays. And uh, I'm now new friends with Kara, which makes me feel good. Hey, Dave, I'm new friends with you too. This is amazing. Thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate you, bud. Well, uh, I hope you found that conversation enlightening and helpful, and I certainly did. And uh, I love how Dave finished his uh, sign-off post on Instagram. He just said, hey, if you're in the Austin area and you see me, give me a big hug. And that's certainly (laughs) what I would do if I saw him. And uh, I was really grateful for Dave and uh, for the text exchange that we had when we talked about airing this episode. So you can find out more uh, of this episode, including insights and quotes at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 475. And this episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire. Get a custom website and web maintenance by going to prowebfire.com. Tell them I sent you, you'll get a discount. And by Remodel Health, register for their free webinar on understanding the 401k of health benefits by going to remodelhealth.com slash webinar. I'm going to tell you what's coming up next, but if you haven't yet seen that now, have you noticed the change in our little artwork? It says, hey, we're part of the Art of Leadership Network and we're not alone. It's a brand new network, a podcast network we've started. We got a series of podcasts. We've got some from Jenny Catron, Brad Lominick, Chris Cook, Jeff Henderson, Shane Benson, David Farmer, Kevin Jennings, Exponential has some shows there, and Sean Morgan as well. You can head on over to theartofleadershipnetwork.com to find all the shows or just search Art of Leadership Network wherever you listen to your podcasts and they will pop up. Next episode, we got Clay Scroggins. He's a best-selling author and speaker. And uh, well, here's an excerpt. Because I feel like, oh, Mm. you went through a pandemic. Everybody started reflecting on their job and their life and what they're doing, having all those existential questions of what am I here for, all that stuff. And then you resigned, which that is what that, (laughs) in a nutshell, that is what happened. But obviously, it's far more complicated. But not on the inside. <laughs> I know right. I'm a statistic, That's but right. I'm not a statistic, no, right? I Come was, on, I guys. am Give unique. Me a break. I'm a snowflake. I'm the only one going through this. If you subscribe, you get that automatically for free. Also coming up, uh, Jenny Allen, Dion Nicholas. We've got Francesca Gino, Levi Lusco, Ann Voskamp, Philip Yancey, Joshua Becker, and many, many more. Bob Goff's coming back, too. And I only listen to the podcasts I subscribe to. So if you're new, and a lot of you must be, because my goodness, is it growing? Uh, Well, click on through, subscribe, and then you're never going to miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Do check out theartofleadershipnetwork.com. Check out some amazing new shows that we have partnered with and uh, enjoy listening this week. We'll catch you next time on the podcast. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.